Amen. Good morning. So we're in Mark chapter 6. And by way of brief introduction, this passage brings us into a new realm within Mark. So we've seen the evils that are within the flesh of the enemies of Jesus. We've seen the influence of Satan in demonic possession and how the demons respond to Jesus. Now we're going to complete the unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil by dealing with the Roman world around Jesus. Because up up to this point, we've only been dealing with Jews. We've remained in, in Judea. But now we're going to get a little glimpse into the Roman aristocracy or the, you know, the, the Roman higher-ups within Judea. And so the worldly system that exists around the Jews is going to be a system of wickedness that is completely opposed to the righteousness of God. And so if you don't know much about the Roman world, or if you do, I mean, I, I love history and the Roman world is fascinating. And so they are one of the richest empires in all of history. So luxury was a big thing in, in Rome. They loved big feasts. They loved to show how much money they had. They loved to show their, their conquests. They loved parades. They loved exalting themselves. The Caesars would call themselves gods. And the uh, Tetrarchs, which Herod, we're going to deal with one of them this morning, the, the ruler over a fourth, so they would divide areas into four different regions. They would be called kings, but they were kind of governors, uh, little small-town despots who really thought highly of their own power. And so that was you know, the, the revelry of the Roman time, but it went even further than that. They loved exalting themselves, but also exalting pleasure. They would love to do everything for their, their own fulfillment. There was no uh, pleasure that they would deny themselves. They loved self-indulgence. And so they loved, uh, they loved violence, and they, they loved sexual indulgence. These things were very public, and they were, they were, they were celebrated highly, and we're going to see one of those examples this morning. And then also... They did what was right in their own eyes. They were a law unto themselves. And very little of what happened in the Roman Empire was what's pleasing to God. And so this may sound like 2,000 years away, but does it sound that different from what we see every day? We're going to see this morning a lot of parallels to our culture. And if you're a student of history, you realize that we are not as different from the Roman Empire as we think. And as time goes on, we're looking more and more like the Roman Empire, and we will probably see their fate. And so we're going to look this morning at some difficult topics, and we're going to speak very plainly uh, about what's going on in this passage. So parents, I want to tell you, there's, there's, there's some things we're going to address today that are, that are in the text. Um, not to be salacious, but we're going to speak very plainly of things of a sexual nature because it's going on in the text, but probably more importantly, it is happening right now. And in the church, we need to have biblical responses to these things. Because if your upbringing was anything like mine, in the church, we didn't talk about these things. We acted like these perversions never went on, or they don't, it only happened over there. But it is creeping into every one of our TV sets. It is, it is on every one of our, our, our phones, and is becoming prevalent everywhere around us. And so we need to have a biblical view of what these things are and have biblical answers to them. And so, you know, we're going to touch on some of the sacred cows within our culture. And one of the commentators I read this week said, John the Baptist had no sacred cows in his herd, and I love that about him. There was nothing off topic for him. 
because he cared most about God's righteousness. What honors the Lord. He did not care how people responded to him. And he did not show any partiality. We're going to look at John the Baptist and, and his interactions with the household of Herod. And this is also unique in the book of Mark because it's one of only two passages where Jesus is not the main subject. Both of those passages, it is John the Baptist. He, we also saw him in chapter 1. The entire book, Mark's thesis, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is his gospel. But so integral to his gospel is John the Baptist. And so we're going to see examples of his character and his righteousness and how he points us to Christ this morning. So our title is Righteousness in a, in a Wicked World. I, I was really tempted with the alternate title, uh, The Baptist and the Bloody Birthday. I just think it's like a great title. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe before I put it on the website, I'll change it to The Baptist and the Bloody Birthday, but it's, it's what it is. Uh, so if you, if you have your uh, Bibles, uh, open up to Mark chapter 6. I'm going to pick up in verse 14. We've got a big passage, so so I'm going to try to move quickly through here, uh, and we can't address every detail as we normally would, uh, but we're going we're to pick our spots. Uh, but I wanted to do the entire narrative together. Verse 14, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, who I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you Ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and said, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples have heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are perfectly righteous, perfectly just. There is no wrong way within you. Throughout history, you've sent your servants and your prophets to declare your will and to declare your word. And our sinful human nature rejects you with every fiber of our being. We don't want our sins exposed. We don't want to repent. We don't want to surrender to you. 
but we praise you, O Lord, that you take our hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh, that you breathe your spirit within us that we may have life. You sent your son that he might go to the cross, that we might have his righteousness, and we might stand before you righteous because of Christ. Thank you for the example of John the Baptist who went before our Savior, who made his paths straight, proclaim the gospel of the kingdom who pointed us to the lamb of the world may we learn from his unwavering conviction to righteousness may you strengthen and encourage your people to stand bold and to stand tall when we are confronted with wickedness when we are accused and mocked for our conviction to what honors you. May we seek to please you and not please man. And may your word this morning convict us, guide us, teach us, grow us into the image of your Son, that he may be glorified through the power of your Spirit. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, so here's where we're picking up in the narrative. Last week, the disciples were commissioned and they were sent out. And so kind of this is a, this is a side note, one of those comic book, uh, meanwhile, in, in, in the palace of Herod, here's what's going on. The disciples are out preaching and teaching, and Herod's can't avoid hearing this. So picking up in verse 14, King Herod heard of it. Now, the question someone asked me is, who's King Herod? Well, there's at least four of them in the New Testament. And um, they all come from the the line or the family tree of Herod. This is Herod Antipas, who's uh, the the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one who who uh, tried to destroy all the babies when Jesus was, was born, and his his son is following on in his in his legacy. Um, but what you what you need to know is that the entire family was wicked. There were there's not a godly man among the bunch, and uh, they all followed in Herod the Great's footsteps. They're all self indulgent. Jesus called this particular Herod a fox, and it's not a compliment. Uh, it was not a good thing. When the Pharisees were trying to send him off because Herod wanted to kill him, Jesus didn't care. I'm, I'm here to proclaim the gospel, tell that fox to go and shove it, basically. And this Herod heard of it. What is the it? Uh, we can tell from the context that, uh, as he continues, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had became known. Basically, everything we've seen in chapter 1 through 6 up to this point. Jesus is teaching in the synagogues, there is healing, there is, there is miracles, there's demons being cast out, and obviously it's going to make its way to the palace uh, where Herod ruled over Palestine. So his, his area was Galilee and, and Perea, the, the, the whole area where Jesus ministered. He is the, the, the Roman ruler over that area. Luke tells us he heard about all that was happening. And so now he's beginning to ask himself some questions because... Mark is kind of jumping around a little bit here. Herod's thinking in his head, well, what is actually going on? Who is this, this man? Because I've never heard of anyone else who's even close to some Jewish teacher. Uh, maybe it's John the Baptist. And so th- th- that's what we kind of pick up. We get a little insight into Herod's mind. And uh, I don't know how Mark gets this information, but it's really helpful for us. Mark is the only one of Matthew, Mark, and Luke who, who digs so much into Herod's confliction within himself. And so here's what Herod's thinking. Um, Matthew tells us that this is a conversation with a servant. 
but he's thinking it, he's articulating it. So he says, some have said that John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and this is why these miraculous powers are at work with him. But others said he's Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, who I beheaded, has been raised. Now this debate was going on. Who is Jesus? And John the Baptist even sent his disciples to Jesus and said, who, who are you? Is there another one to come after you? And these, these three options, or these are the, uh, the prevailing views at the time. Either John the Baptist came back to life, or it's Elijah who was supposed to come before the Messiah, or it is another one of the Old Testament prophets in the style of the Old Testament prophets. And what these all have in common is the message and the miraculous. It's a, it's a combination of the two. And this is... Um, and Jesus is put in, in, uh, in context of all these other prophets. And this is important, and this is all true, that Jesus is, has the power of Elijah. He is a prophet, as we've seen in the book of Hebrews. Um, he is related to John the Baptist, but it's not enough. It's not enough unless he is Messiah. Unless he is the, 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 the promised one of God that all these ones are looking toward. And so Herod has some recognition here, but he's still falling short. And what I love about this is that John the Baptist is so closely related with Jesus that they're mistaken for one another. There is no greater compliment to a Christian than to be mistaken for Jesus. This should be all of our goal. And then it made me think, would I be mistaken for Jesus? Would you be mistaken for Jesus? Would people say, Man, you are so Christ-like. I've never seen righteousness and holiness and love and justice and mercy lived out in a person before. Well, that was John the Baptist. The one that Jesus called the greatest man ever born of woman. And his fame spread even, and we've looked at this before early on, but even among Jewish historians, John the Baptist was more famous than Jesus. If you read Josephus, he mentions John the Baptist more than he mentions Jesus. This is where we are, and then John was so important, not because of who John was, but because who he pointed to, and we'll get there in a moment. So this is the, um, the debate you know, that, that's, that's going on in Herod's head, like his, his confusion, what's really happening here. And so when we transition into verse 17, we're going to transition from the, the present and we're going to go back in time. There's a bit of a, a flashback. And so we're going to look at Herod's mindset and then Herodias' manipulation. So picking up in verse 17, you know, John, or Herod is thinking to himself, but in verse 17, uh, Mark brings us back to what Herod did, what, Herod's ref- or what Herod is referring to. For it was Herod who sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Now, it's one thing to marry your, your brother's wife. It sounds scandalous enough, but it's way worse than it sounds. So if you look up the Herod family tree, it looks more like a cobweb. So not only was this adulterous, it was also incestuous. So they weren't just married. Uh, she left her husband and he left his wife to be together. Um, he was his brother's wife, or she was his brother's wife technically, uh, but also she was his half-niece uh, because she was the daughter of another son of Herod the Great. She married her half-uncle and left her half-uncle for her other half-uncle, uh, and, and she is literally trying to sleep her way up the uh, family chain. 
And this is what's, what's going on. So when he says it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife, there's kind of a double meaning there. It's, it's, it's adulterous, but she's also, they're really keeping it in the family. And this is, so this, this is a lot worse than, than how it sounds. And so this family is full of distrust and bigamy and murder and incest. Basically sounds like every royal family throughout history which coincidentally sounds like every trailer park family throughout history at the same time. And you think from, from the top all the way down to the bottom, it's not that different. And this is a twisted soap opera. And one of the things we're going to see throughout this text is there is nothing new under the sun. You're given way too much power and way too much time on your hands. And this is what, this is what happens. And so this is what John is addressing because it was John who was saying, verse 18, for John had been saying. This in the Greek means he didn't say it once. It was a continual challenge. He had been saying. He kept saying. I don't know how John gets in an audience with Herod. I don't know how this happens. I don't know if Herod seeks him out or if John is yelling at him from the, the, the street or they, they meet for coffee regularly. I don't know what it is. But John was regularly speaking to him, regularly calling him out for, for this, saying it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. We don't know what their relationship looked like, but we do know that he did not shy away from the truth. He did not care this was the most powerful man in the region. He had no partiality and no cowardice whatsoever. His conviction and his commitment was to the righteousness of God. Even among pagans, he feared God more than man. His righteousness was that he was concerned with purity more than he was concerned with popularity. Proverbs 28.23 is a, is a principle which is very difficult, especially for those of us who struggle with people-pleasing. What made John the Baptist righteous? One of many things. But this principle here, whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. And what favor was he looking for? Was he looking for favor in the, in the sight of Herod? No. He knew where his favor led. And so, you know, as we, as we think about this, what is our commitment to the truth? Are we more comfortable flattering people and making them comfortable in their sin? What is our commitment to righteousness? Do we have righteous anger when God's law is broken and distorted? Are we able to stand up to those who are flaunting their sinfulness right in front of us, where God has given us influence? Now, I wouldn't recommend walking up into the governor's mansion and telling him about his sins or, you know, senator, whatever you want. But John had an audience. John, as a prophet of God, was given this opportunity. But we've got to be careful here. We should stand for the truth. We should be able to address sin, but there is no joy in this. I have known people who find way too much pleasure in calling out the sins in other people. We have to be very careful that we look toward the plank in our own eye first before the speck in someone else's. But, repenting of our sins, purifying ourselves before the Lord, we can stand on the truth of God regardless of what man will think of us. Then we're going to continue on in what's going on in Herod's household. So he's a, he's a conflicted house here. Verse 19. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. She wanted to kill the messenger of God, but why? 
What was his great crime? What did he do? He brought attention to her sin. How dare he? This is what Jesus tells us again and again. If you confront sin, you will be hated. They hated me, they will hate you. This is why the prophets were not popular men throughout Scripture. Because it was their job to expose the sin of Israel. And they don't want it exposed. From the garden, we've been trying to hide our sin. We've been trying to hide our nakedness. And we resent anyone who wants to expose it. What we see here is that the righteous cannot suffer the wicked. Old King James word that basically can't put up with, can't be in the same room with. And vice versa. The wicked cannot suffer the righteous. She hated the fact that there was a righteous and holy man who would hold her accountable to her sins and was not afraid to tell her. She hated the fact that her desire for power and desire to have her, her, her own um, plans fulfilled were addressed by this weird-looking guy in camel's hair yelling at her husband. So she had this plot in her mind. And as I was thinking about this this week, it brought to mind all of the challenges that Jesus gave to the Pharisees. One of them stuck out, Luke 6, 26. In this manner you shall... Uh, nope, I guess I didn't change it. So, Luke six twenty six. That's why you don't start reading before you look at what's on the screen. Luke, Luke six twenty six says, Woe to you! When all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did so to the false prophets. How do we know the difference between a, a true prophet and a false prophet? The false prophet, everybody loves. If you've got 70,000 people in a, a, a stadium that are cheering for you every Sunday morning, you're a false prophet. It's easy to be loved when you tell everyone what they want to hear, when you tickle their ears. True prophets in love say difficult things. And people are not going to speak well of you. If anyone, any of you have tried to address sin in other people, even other believers, it often does not go well. They don't want to hear it. But if you do, and you do it in love, and you do it in, in, in truth, you don't do it in arrogance, you are in good company as John the Baptist. The other thing I love about this section is what Mark draws us into. Because he talks about what was going on in Herod's mind, in Herodias' mind, but he digs a little deeper. She wanted to put him to death, but she could not. Why? Verse 20. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Can he be more confused? Like, this man is so conflicted right now, because he fears John, but he fears his wife more, so he arrests John. But he sees that John is a righteous man. He's a, he's a holy man. He likes listening to him. And so he keeps him safe, but he's still perplexed when he's listening to him. This is a man who is who's confused within his own mind. And I think it's important here when we address, when he says righteous and holy, he means something different than me, we mean righteous and holy. He recognizes that there is, a, there is a moral quality about this man. He is holy. He is different than other people. So in his mind, he sees his moral character. He, he sees his distinction from others. And these words in, in the Greek have a general use. But we know them more specifically. Righteousness. 
It is what is right and pleasing to God. It is a recognized, um, it is something that is recognized in the sight of God. It is a synonym for justice. When we see justice and we see uh, to be justified in justification, all these come from the same root as righteous. It is, it is a legal quality according to God's moral standard. And holiness, holiness is a general word that just means to be set apart, to be different. But if you are set apart by God, you are completely different. You are not a part of the world. And so even though this pagan sees John as this, he is prophetically speaking to who John is. He is righteous and he is holy. And his wife hates him for it. But he wants to protect him. And he has up to this point. And so as you think about Herod's conflict, we should pause for a moment. That Herod would fear John. If you know who John the Baptist is, he's a guy who lives in the wilderness. He eats bugs. He wears camel's hair. He's a, he's, he's a fiery preacher who dunks people into water. And Herod, the most powerful man in Palestine, in this area of Palestine, fears John. How amazing is it? One weird guy with the word of God. One righteous man who stands on his convictions. And Herod doesn't know what to do with himself. And we can go even a little bit further and dig into ourselves here because when we look at what's going on in Herod's mind, maybe it exposes something with us. Because I have this conversation with people all the time, with believers all the time. We have a hard time believing that rich and powerful people have problems. We have a hard time believing that, oh, those with all the money and those with all the, 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 the influence, uh, well, I wouldn't want to preach to them or they don't, they don't need the gospel or they've got all this money. How are they, they struggling? Mark shows us that this powerful man is going crazy within his own mind trying to figure this out. Everyone wrestles with their own sin because of the conscience. God has written it on our hearts. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 2. Mark exposes what is going on in Herod's heart, but every time the gospel is preached, this is what's going on. Herod gives it some real estate, but you must either address it or suppress it. So Romans chapter 2, we'll pick up in verse 12. This is right in the middle of the law gospel conversation where Paul is convicting the Jews, and also the Gentiles. But here specifically talking about the Gentiles. There's a very important principle here. Picking up in verse 12. For all have sinned with, excuse me, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Gentiles here. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. You will be judged by whatever standard God finds you. And so when people ask, well, what about the person on the island who, is, who, who has never heard of God? His law is written, and he'll get in here in a moment, his law is written on, on his heart. If you don't grow up in the church, or you don't grow up in Judaism, you still have a standard, and we're going to see that standard in a moment. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. How do, we describe, how do we define righteousness? But it is the doers of the law who will be justified. Notice the parallel there. Righteousness equals justification. The righteous ones are not just the hearers, but the doers. They will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, 
See if this sounds like Herod. By nature, do what the law requires. They're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Sorry, this is Herod. They, verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their consciences also bear witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There is a confliction going on within Herod. There is a confliction every time someone is held to the standard of God's righteousness. John the Baptist says, this is not lawful. What is the standard? The standard is Jesus Christ. Everyone will be measured by that standard. As good as you think you are in your, in, in your, in your eyes, as, as, as moral as anyone thinks they are, they will be judged by Christ. And John the Baptist is calling him out according to the standard of righteousness that can only be met by Christ. And every person, when they hear the gospel, they have to say, am I standing on my righteousness? Or will I repent and stand on the righteousness of Christ? And this is a clear example that shows you can recognize the message is good, the man is good. It is righteous and holy and still hold on to your sin because you love it so much. You can even nod and be happy to hear him. He's he's sitting there with a smile on his face, happy to hear how John the Baptist tells him he's a sinner and still does not repent. Sadly, churches are filled with people like Herod. And I really hope that that is none of you who sit and smile and say, yeah, this is good, yet are holding on to your own sins. You don't know how wicked you are. You don't know how high the standard is. So that's what's going on in Herod's mind. But something else is going on in his wife's mind, and now she gets her opportunity in verse 21. An opportunity came, the one she'd been looking for, uh, when Herod held on his birthday. He gave a great banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Of course... If Herod thinks so highly of himself, he's got to invite the who's who. He invites the political guys, the military guys, the, the uh, social guys, and he has this big feast. And when Herodias' daughter came at four, when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. Now we could just read right through this. But this is where it gets uncomfortable for a moment. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, there's a couple details here. One, an opportunity came. She wanted to put him to death. Now an opportunity comes. What does she use for her opportunity? Her daughter. This word in the original is an adolescent, probably prepubescent girl. She sends her little daughter in to dance, and this is not ballet. These grown men, these grown degenerates are pleased they love to watch this little girl dance sensuously in front of them josephus tells us her name is salome and her mother uses her as a sexualized pawn so she can hold on to her power it's disgusting right but are we that far off there's a controversy not too long ago about the show on Netflix, Cuties, right? Where people got up in arms, but it's still there. It became one of the most, one of the most watched shows. 
13-year-old girls writhing and dancing half-dressed. And this is the highest form of self-expression in our culture. Are we really that different than Rome? That's what the culture tells us, right? This is your greatest form of expression. This is where your identity is. And it gets younger and younger and younger, especially in little girls. You look at the clothes that are marketed to little girls. You look at the TV shows. There is an assault on our children, and the culture celebrates it, just like Herod and his twisted old perverts celebrated it. And we wonder why sex trafficking is at an all-time high. You're dressing little girls up and parading them around. And this is happening younger and younger. You wonder, like, someone like Jeffrey Epstein can make millions and millions off of this. Sometimes we read the scriptures and we think, oh, that was just ancient Rome and they were so wicked. Sometimes we look around us and we say, man, this, this is wicked, but we don't know how to respond. What we need to do is instill in our children that your value is being made in the image of God, especially in little girls. I want you to look at 1 Peter 3. It'll be up on the screen. 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external. The braining of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. I'm going to leave that up after I read this, Trey. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. This is the message our little girls need to hear. It breaks my heart every time I've seen my little cousins or believers' children whose teenagers go out half-dressed or staying out with guys or, or on their phones all night going back and forth. This is prevalent everywhere. We've got to tell little girls that your beauty does not come from being noticed by men. God has given you your beauty, and it is internal, it is imperishable, because when that beauty fades, so will their identity. And you've got a lot of lost little girls who don't know what to do when they start to wrinkle and they start to not look like they did when they were younger. But if you have imperishable beauty that is in the heart, that is precious in God's sight, that is His righteousness put in you through Christ, then nothing the world tempts them with will lead them astray. But so often Christians do not have the answer to this. We know it's wrong, but we don't know how to address it, and we need to be equipped to address it. But whatever it is, it worked. Because how does Herod respond? Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. He's so caught up in the moment. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Now, half my kingdom, is this, for, is this literal? It's probably a figure of speech. Because Herod didn't really own anything. He was given governance by Rome over the land. And so uh, it's probably a figure of speech. I'll give you whatever you want up to half my kingdom. This is how drawn in he was. And if you know your Bibles, it should make you think of someone in Scripture. Who should this make you think of? The line, up to half my kingdom. You can say it out loud. Esther? Anyone? Thank you. Uh, so you didn't say it out loud. Okay, I couldn't hear you. Esther, on the complete other side of this, who becomes queen 
in, in, in Persia. Her, her beauty, the writer of Esther says she was lovely to look at. It's a good thing. God creates beauty and we are to admire it to give God glory. We don't see beauty as something for our self-gratification, but thank you, God, that you create in beauty. When we see a tree or we see a sunset, we see a beautiful woman, is because God is the creator of things beautiful. And this beautiful woman did not flaunt it, did not have to persuade King Ahasuerus with all of her sexual wiles, but she was upright in her character. And she used her beauty to save her people. She was so pleasing to him, he said, I will give you whatever you want, up to half my kingdom. She didn't take anything selfish. Not for me, but for my people. How can I rejoice when my people are going to be slaughtered by your servant, Haman? Esther's a great book to read about righteous and upright character. This is a godly woman. And we're going to see the contrast of feminine beauty used by a righteous woman in Esther versus a wicked woman in Herodias. Look at the next verse. And she came in immediately. This is, um, oh, sorry, verse 24. And she, meaning the daughter, went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Herodias is a scheming master manipulator. She is manipulating men. She knows how to do it. She's made a career out of it. She is a Jezebel of the highest order. And she seizes this opportunity to make sure that she can hold on to her influence. And she takes full advantage of Herod's pride and his guests. Sends her daughter out to do her bidding. You think this girl learned how to dance on her own? No. She knew what would happen, and it played right into her hand. I want the head of John the Baptist. And what does the wicked mother pass on to her daughter? Look at the language that Mark uses in her daughter's response. And she, meaning the daughter, came in immediately with haste to the king and said, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Immediately, with haste, at once. She's not just a willing, she's not an unwilling participant. She's excited about it. She can't wait to make her mama proud. She runs immediately at once. And if you notice, she ups the bloody ante. Because her mother says, give me the head of John the Baptist. She says, put it on a platter. Many parents are surprised when they promote worldliness and their children end up more worldly than they are. Don't be surprised when if your children's intake is blood and sex that they don't learn to love it and crave it. And they may surpass you in it. And again, this is why it is so important to guard our children. Guard what goes into their eyes. Guard what allows them to be to, to um, what we allow to influence them. Because children want to imitate and please their parents. If they see you excited about this, they're going to be excited about it. And she is very much her mother's daughter and outshone her mother in wickedness. And now we kind of turn to Herod's contrition. 
because he's caught up in the moment. The little girl had him on a string. At this point, he would probably rather given up half his kingdom. But when he hears it, the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths, oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. He now regrets it, but he's got to save face. He wants to be a man of his word, but he also doesn't want to look weak in front of his guests. So I guess I have to give the little girl what she wants. And his power was so immediate. Typically in these palaces, there would be a prison underneath where the, 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 the banquet hall was. John probably heard the revelry upstairs. That's why Mark can say, and immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison. And he brought back his head in a platter. They're still partying. Sends the executioner out, the power of life and death in his hands in an instant. And John the Baptist's head comes back in. Well, thankfully, we don't have same-day executions. Not yet, at least. But our culture seeks to do the same thing. We have what we call cancel culture now, right? Where if you say something against the culture's pet sins, they seek to erase you immediately. They want you executed from the public sphere. They don't want anyone to, to, draw, to uh, contradict them, to draw anything opposing their worldviews. And the world wants it executed immediately. I was thinking about the, uh, the uh, parallel here. Every one of us has the Roman Colosseum in our phones. We have blood and sex and spectacle on display. And how do we know what continues on? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Do they live? Do they keep going? No, you receive enough dislikes, you are canceled. So many of us, or many of you who live on social media, and I feel sorry for you, but if you do, you might fear speaking the truth. You might fear speaking the truth to family members. You might fear standing up for righteousness because of how people are going to respond. You might say the wrong thing. They may take away your Facebook account, which probably is not the worst thing. It might be the best thing for you. But our, we, we may not lose our heads, but we might lose our standing in the culture. It's coming. It's happening. Will we stand for righteousness even if the world cuts us off? If the world won't let us do business, if we get fired, it's happening more and more. It's not as extreme here, but the principle still stands. The world does not want its sin exposed. The world does not want someone to tell them that they are wrong and that there is a moral standard with which they must abide by. And there's judgment for those who don't. This shows the spiritual battle between the kingdom of God and the system of the world. John the Baptist, the greatest man born of woman, dies at the hand of an adulterous woman. This is the spiritual tension going on here. We've all heard Matthew 6.33, but think about it in this context. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He sought the kingdom of God, God's righteousness. His very life was taken from Him. 
He didn't have anything else anyway. He didn't walk around with a suitcase. He did not seek earthly comfort to be loved by the world, but his reward is great in the world to come. He cared about God's righteousness, and he has treasure that is unfading. He has a greater feast than Herod could ever imagine. He has more riches than Herod could ever long for. But when we think about this for us, seeking his kingdom and his righteousness, it means much more in the face of hostility. It means much more when the world is spitting in your face. It means much more when the, the world is threatening to cut you off from society. But I digress. Continuing in the text. Verse 28. And he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Think about how insane this is. This hedonistic party ends with, this is how you shut down a party. You bring a bloody head in the middle and hand it to a little girl who immediately goes and hands it to her mother. This is not out of the ordinary for ancient Rome. Blood and sex was just part of their, what they did, especially for the ruling class. This is so perverse. But how often are we okay watching the same thing on TV? We wouldn't parade it into our living room, but we'll bring it into our living room. How much of this stuff is on the shows that we watch and the movies that we watch? I know I'm guilty of it. I know that I've been desensitized to so much of this and reading this this week like, man, that's terrible, but I've watched a lot worse. Are we as aware of that? It seems so blatant here. We would never parade a bloody head into our living room, or would we? It seems extreme, but is it really that different than what we see in the headlines or what we see in our Netflix suggestions? There is nothing new under the sun. So as we wrap this up, what happened to Herod and Herodias? Well, they went on and lived happily ever after, right? No, definitely not. Uh, his, uh, his marital exploits came back to bite him. His wife, Eratos, uh, raises an army and defeats his army and humiliates him. And uh, Herodias try, convinces him that he should go to Rome and seek a higher office. Of course she does. Calig- Caligula finds out about it and exiles them, and they uh, live outside of uh, l- life and luxury. They kind of die in obscurity. That's, that's, that's what happened. All of her scheming comes to naught. And there's one last verse here. Kind of brings this home. When his disciples heard of it, they came in and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This should also make you think of another account in the Bible. What was John the Baptist's main role? He was to prepare the way for the Lord. He was to go before Him. And this is just another way he went before Him. His identity was questioned. He was challenged by the religious leaders. He was hated for calling out sin. He was feared. When people, when people heard Him, they were confused and they were glad. He was plotted to be murdered by His enemies. And He died for the sake of righteousness, 
the hands of those who hated him. And he was laid in a tomb by his disciples. But thankfully, the one he went before did not remain in the tomb. John was so much like Jesus, he was even buried in a tomb like Jesus by his disciples. But he was not Jesus. Herod considered Jesus' identity. Was he John the Baptist raised? Was he Elijah? Was he a prophet? But he could never fathom the one who was greater than John the Baptist. The one who John the Baptist said, I'm not even worthy to tie his dirty shoes. John the Baptist's message still rings. There's a reason why he is in every gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all bring in John the Baptist because he was essential for the coming of the Messiah. But his message still stands. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The message he heard from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This same Lamb who will take away your, your sins, who will become your perfect sacrifice, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will cover you with His Spirit. He will send His Spirit to indwell within you, to teach you, to protect you, to preserve you. He is greater than me. Look to Him, not me. John was not concerned for his own life, his own vindication, or his own popularity. He went to dead, he went to the grave, a headless man. But he is better off with no head because Christ is his head. And so are we. So, in conclusion, then and now, the world's greatest problem and the world's greatest enemy is righteousness. God's perfect standard. God's fixed, immutable, meaning unchanging standard of righteousness. And their only hope is to embrace what they hate. They hate God's righteousness. They hate God's law. They hate the righteous one who holds them accountable. That's their only hope. But that right one, that righteous one challenges all the world's pet sins. And even for those of us in Christ, he challenges all of our pet sins. He is the standard, perfect in purity and peace and grace and mercy and righteousness and truth. He is our standard and the standard by which the world cannot live up to. There is no righteousness apart from Christ. There is no righteousness within ourselves that can get high enough. You need the righteousness of Christ. And as we read this, do we love Christ and His righteousness more than our very heads? How many martyrs have gone to their grave taking a bullet or a noose or a sword rather than denounce their Savior because they knew their righteousness was in His kingdom. Their identity was with Him forever. This is just one example, but this is true. You cannot love God and love your sin. You cannot want to hold on to your sin and think you will grow in Christ. You cannot please God and please man. You cannot serve two masters. This is a story of two men serving very different masters. Herod serving himself and his sin. And John serving the true and living God to his very grave. 
And so for us, do not be fooled. If you love the world and you love the wicked things of the world, you will find good company with Herod and you will meet his fate. But if you love the kingdom of God, the righteousness of the Lord Most High, your home will be with him and you will dine and feast with him and you will rejoice with him as your righteousness, as your standard in your place. This is something the world cannot offer and the world cannot compete with. I hope, as his church, we find our peace and our comfort in that. Let's pray. O Lord Most High, most righteous, most awesome, most splendid. We are so weak and frail. We are so drawn away by our own sins and our selfish desires. How many times have we been no different than Herod and Herodias? How many times have we sought our own pleasure? Seek to hide our own sin. Lord, please expose that in us. Without your righteousness, we are without hope. Lord, we praise you, the God who creates and redeems. We praise you that our righteous one did not stay in the grave. That he took away our sin, that he gave us his righteousness, that he baptized us in his spirit that we might live for Him and live in Him, that He might be glorified. Lord, as the world around us rages against You in vain, let us stand on Your Word. Let us stand on the immovable rock of our salvation because this world will pass away. Our citizenship is not here. As we live here, let us be salt and light and righteousness and truth to a world that is perishing. Let us not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. We praise you for this good news that we get to be your ambassadors. We get to stand in your name. Let us speak the truth in love, not out of arrogance or pride, but out of concern for the lost but most importantly, concern for your righteousness and your holiness, that your name would not be defamed because you deserve all power and glory and praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.